name. Amen. All right, everybody, how you doing on your Bible reading? Where you at? Where are you in the Bible? Are you reading? Lots of Proverbs. Proverbs. Yep, I'm in the Proverbs too. We're doing the chronological. We'll take us into Proverbs right now for a little while. Anybody else? What are you reading in your Bible these days? Oh, okay, still in Exodus? Okay, good. I think my mom mentioned that they're reading Exodus too, so Exodus as well. Anybody else? What are you reading in your Bibles these days? First Samuel. First Samuel, good, okay. Okay, yes, another Proverbs. We're in Proverbs as well, chronological Bible. Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy, okay. Gary, you have one? Are you reading right now? Are you, are you working with like a plan or are you just kind of going where the Lord takes you? Oh, cool. Cool, cool. Well, good. Let me encourage you to be in your Bibles, reading. And, uh, you know, we just finished our series on prayer. So, of course, we want you to be praying and going to God and praying the scripture and letting the scripture inform your prayers and then letting your prayers you know, help you understand the scripture. So very, very good, very important. Well, we're continuing our walk through the minor prophets today. And today we have the book of Zephaniah. Okay, I'm going to start with a little quiz. We're going to go pop quiz. Well, let's see if it works. Okay, how many books of the Bible start with the letter Z? Two. The answer is two. We have Zephaniah and Zechariah, two Z books. Okay, which Z book comes first in the Bible's table of contents? Zephaniah. Zephaniah, good. It goes Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. Good. Now, here's a little one, a little bit tricky. Which book comes first chronologically? Which one of those books was written first? Zephaniah or Zechariah? Zechariah? Well, the answer is Zephaniah. Zephaniah was written approximately a hundred years before Zechariah. So you got a hundred year gap there. All right, now I'm going to give you some quotes from the book, books, and we'll see if you can get which one this comes from. Again, Zephaniah, Zechariah. Here's the first one. On that day... I will punish everyone who leaps over the threshold and those who fill their master's house with violence and fraud. Is that Zephaniah or Zechariah? It is Zephaniah 1, verse 9. All right. How about this one? I saw in the night, and behold, a man riding on a red horse... He was standing among the myrtle trees in the glen, and behind him were red sorrel and white horses. That is Zechariah 1, verse 8. All right, how about this one? The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. That is Zephaniah 317. Very good. How about this one? 
Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? That is Zechariah chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Very famous scene. Okay, but now with all that in mind, who was Zephaniah? And why did God give him this unique vision of judgment, mercy, and the day of the Lord? We'll talk about those themes, which we've been talking about in the Minor Prophets. And why should this book matter more than 2,000 years after it was written? What is the current uh, relevance of this ancient book for modern or postmodern people like us who live in a very different time, a very different place, uh, different questions? How does uh, Zephaniah answer some of the universal questions of what it means to be a human being, about what it means to believe in God, to understand God, to understand his mercy, his judgment. All right, let's jump in with some author and date questions. Now, in the first verse we read, the word of the Lord came to Zephaniah. That's the very first verse of the whole thing. And we have no reason to doubt that it was some other author or some other writer. It's just very straightforward. It was the prophet Zephaniah. The text then traces Zephaniah's history back four generations to King Hezekiah, who was the last God-fearing king of Judah. That's unique. None of the other prophets trace the genealogy back that far. Or even, in many cases, mention a genealogy at all. Sometimes you'll say, it'll say, well, this prophet was the son of so-and-so, but that's about it. So why would that be? Zephaniah's name means Yahweh has hidden or Yahweh has protected. Our best guess is that Zephaniah's parents gave their son the name Zephaniah because they believed that God was protecting or hiding them during the godless reign of King Manasseh. So we have King Hezekiah, who is one of uh, Zephaniah's relatives, a good godly king, uh, he is then replaced by a couple of ungodly kings. And so we think probably Zephaniah was born during this time, his parents believing that he was part of a, a remnant that was being preserved or protected by the Lord. We're also told that Zephaniah prophesied in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, the king of Judah, Josiah uh, was another faithful king who ruled Judah from 640 to 609 B.C. That means that Zephaniah was a contemporary of both Habakkuk and Jeremiah. Who of those two guys was the most famous, do you think? Habakkuk or Jeremiah? Jeremiah. Though, it's interesting to note that many of... If you were to ask that question in the days of both Habakkuk and Jeremiah, you might get a mixed response there. There's that famous scene where uh, they're, they're testing one of the prophets and they appeal to Habakkuk as sort of the standard of, he says, well, isn't what he's saying very much in line with the prophet Habakkuk? So there's, he was a very respected prophet in his own day, though certainly the length of his writing is, is much shorter than Jeremiah. All right, now, can we narrow down the date more than that? 
We can, thanks to some helpful clues. In Zephaniah 2, verse 13, the prophet predicted the fall of Nineveh, which happened somewhere around 612 B.C. So now our date range is from 640 to 612 B.C. Does that make sense? So he prophesied the fall of Nineveh before 612 B.C., so that's our, our range now. Now, another thing to notice is Zephaniah makes several references to the law of Moses, which Josiah rediscovered in 622 B.C. Now, assuming that the law was largely unknown before Josiah rediscovered it, our new date range is down to a decade, 622 to 612 B.C. Now, keep in mind, Jerusalem was destroyed by the Babylonians in 568 B.C., that means that Zephaniah was one of the last pre-exilic prophets, a fact that explains the urgency and the intensity of his words. Does that make sense? So he is one of the last prophets to prophesy before the Babylonians come in and wipe out Jerusalem and put the people in exile in Babylon. And in Babylon, we meet Daniel and his three friends and all the ex exile prophets there, so... Okay. Now, Zephaniah correctly predicted that Judah would be invaded and that Jerusalem, the capital city, would be destroyed. Somebody read Zephaniah 1, verse 4. So the remnant of Baal refers to the people who had been corrupted by, by Baal worshippers. So there's a, an enemy who's coming to wipe them out. Now, who was the enemy? While most scholars believe that <laughs> Zephaniah was talking about the Babylonians, a minority view is that he was talking about the Russians. Specifically, the Scythians, who are a group of nomadic tribes who live just north of the Black Sea. It was probably the Babylonians, though. Or was it? <laughs> a little Russia humor this morning. All right, now literary analysis and outline. Roughly two-thirds of the book is oracles of judgment, while the, first th uh, the final third of the book contains oracles of mercy. So two-thirds judgment, one-third mercy in that order. Here's roughly an outline. We have at first oracles of judgment against Judah. So they get the brunt of it first off the bat. Then we have oracles of judgment against the nations. Then finally we have oracles of mercy for Judah and the nations. Does that make sense? So judgment against Judah, judgment against the nations, then mercy for first Judah and then the nations. Let's walk through the book. After introducing Zephaniah in verse 1, God promises to destroy the world a universal, universal judgment that will, in effect, reverse the creation. You'll hear that language there. Somebody read Zephaniah 1, verses 2 and 3. See if you can hear that reversal of creation language.
do you hear that language? He's sort of like going through creation and he's saying almost in the same order in which things were created, I am going to uncreate it, which is a very scary thing uh, because it's essentially going to be throwing the universe ultimately, uh, his judgment, into what the Hebrew calls tohu vavohu. Uh, the world will be formless and void once again. Uh, that's what the world was before God created it, and as a result of the judgment, that's essentially what it will be again. So let's talk it. Talk about it. Next, God turns his attention to Judah and Jerusalem, promising to judge them for their idolatry, for their alliances with foreign nations, for their violence, their fraud, and their functional deism. Now, uh, when I say functional deism, somebody read... Uh, chapter 1, verse 12. I think it's chapter 1, verse 12. Yeah. I didn't put, the, put it on here, so if you have it, look it up here. Ezekiel, Daniel. Uh, yeah, go ahead. So do you see sort of a functional deism, this idea that, well, we can do whatever we want, and God's not really involved, and he doesn't really care what we do. So he's condemning them for living as if God doesn't exist. All right, in uh, chapter 1, verses 14 to 17, God, uh, Zephaniah describes the day of the Lord as a terrifying day of judgment for God, against God's enemies. Somebody read verses... 14 and 15. Zephaniah would not make a good Christian greeting card writer. Uh, it's very, very depressing. <laughs> but, hey, we need to hear it. Now, can God's judgment be escaped? That's the question. And Zephaniah's answer is yes, it can be. Somebody read Zephaniah 2, verse 3. Right now, what might that what might the significance of that verse be for the prophet Zephaniah? That's what his name means, right? So, in in essence, his name is the answer to the judgment oracles which we find in the first two thirds of the book. He says, "Yes, you can be a Zephaniah. You can be hidden in Yahweh your God." And he will preserve you. Okay, well, in Zephaniah 2, verses 4, 4 through 14, the prophet pronounces judgment on many places uh, Gaza, Eshkelon, Ashdod, 
and Ekron. They were the four main cities of the Philistines. We have Moab, Ammon, Ethiopia, Egypt, and Assyria. All of them are, are uh, special, uh, signaled out for uh, judgment by God. Now, turning his attention to Judah and Jerusalem again in chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, Zephaniah condemns the princes, judges, prophets, and priests of Israel. Somebody read Zephaniah 3, verses 1 and 2. So all of this, again, condemnation on the people. Now, the good news is Zephaniah ends with good news. At first, we're told that the same nations that were condemned by the Lord God will be restored. Somebody read Zephaniah 3, verses 9 and 10. So there's going to be a restoration that happens first among the nations. Zephaniah also promises that God will redeem and restore the people of Israel. Somebody read Zephaniah 3, 15. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The king of Israel, the Lord is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. And then, probably the most memorable verses of the whole book are next, Zephaniah 3, 16 and 17. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Now, again, this is kind of a recreation imagery. We remember we said at the very beginning of the book that there's sort of a decreation uh, imagery and language that God is going to essentially undo the creation. Well, now he's promising that at the end, he's going to bring the consummation of the creation. He will once again be in the midst of his people, just as he was with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. So it's kind of saying, hey, there's going to be a new Eden, a new paradise, a new garden city of God when God shows mercy on his people. All right, let's look at a couple of themes. The first theme, uh, very prominent in this book, two-thirds of the book, is judgment. Throughout the book, Zephaniah pronounces judgment on God's enemies. The Israelites are condemned for a number of sins, including idolatry, violence, complacency, trusting in money, not trusting in God, injustice, corruption, pride, deceit, and oppressing the poor. We see all of those themes in the book. The nations are condemned mostly for two sins, arrogance and pride. Uh, they taunt the Israelites, believing that they will be safe in their fortified cities. So they say, hey, we're going to you know, what are you going to do, Israel? You're a weak and, you know, 
powerless nation. We have these mighty cities. We will be saved. All right, theological theme. Next one is mercy. God will be merciful to his faithful remnant of believers, both in this life, that's chapter 2, verse 3, and then in the life to come. That's at consummation in chapter 3. This mercy looks like an ingathering of all nations, both Jews and Gentiles. On the last day, God will not only deal with all your oppressors, he will save the lame and gather the outcast. He will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. Okay, now based on those two themes of judgment and mercy and the theme of the day of the Lord when all of this will happen, how do you think this book points forward to Jesus? We've talked about a lot about those three themes in the minor prophets. We have God as a judge. He's righteous. He will punish sin. But then also at the end, we have uh, prophecies of mercy and God will gather the people and he will be kind to them and will forgive their sins. How do those two themes point the way forward to Jesus Christ? How would you connect those dots? If somebody came to you and said, hey, I was reading the book of Zephaniah and uh, I don't know what this guy's talking about. It's all kinds of judgment and fire and then all of a sudden there's a, real, a U-turn and now he's talking about mercy and all this. What's God doing? He's, he's very, seems a little bit schizophrenic. You know, he's very angry, very angry and then he's merciful all of a sudden. What, what do I, how do I make sense of this? So we have a righteousness that is not inherent to us, but that it, it's in Christ. And that, you know, Paul talks about being in Christ and believers are in Christ. And so we're in him, then we have a righteousness that is alien to us or foreign to us. Good. Yes, Ken. through it. Yeah, that's a, good, that's a good point, Ken, that there's sort of a double fulfillment. On the one hand, this was filled uh, when Jesus came to inaugurate the kingdom of God and sort of begin this process. The Lord was in our midst, the God-man, Jesus Christ, mighty to save, mighty healing the sick, raising the dead, uh, forgiving sins, uh, rejoicing over his people. And then there's also a, a future fulfillment when Jesus comes again and brings the fullness of all of this 
uh, to fruition around the whole earth. We see sort of the beginnings of it even at Pentecost where the nations are beginning to be gathered in and 3,000 people were added to the church on a single day and then the uh, disciples are scattered and they take the gospel to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth, the missionary journeys of Paul. All of this is sort of beginning to be fulfilled because of Jesus. Good. Yeah, any other thoughts about how does this book point the way to Jesus? I'm going to jump ahead a little bit. What do you think? Well, let's, we'll, we'll keep going forward here. Um, somebody read Zephaniah 1, verse 7. Now, the question is, did this happen? Did the Lord prepare a sacrifice? Who or what did he sacrifice? And how does that consecrate us? Now, normally in the Bible, it's people that do the sacrificing, right? You would almost expect him to say, be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. Uh, prepare a sacrifice for the Lord and consecrate his guests. It almost seemed like something that we would do. Did this happen? Did the Lord prepare a sacrifice? Yep, the, the Last Supper is certainly the, uh, the beginning of this. And what? he offered his body and blood uh, at the Last Supper and drew his blood in us. We're consecrated. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a, that's a great, great thought. Um, Jesus offered his body and shed his blood for us, an act which is commemorated and celebrated in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. And through his death and resurrection, we are consecrated, set apart, uh, made holy, made uh, distinct, made different because of what God has done for us. The second verse says, Jesus did not come to condemn the world, but to save the world. Mm-hmm. I think that's also what Zephaniah is pointing to. He's, he's had all these oracles of condemnation, and then, but Jesus came to save and put his very life. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, for God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And so, though we stand condemned, apart from the the grace of God, God has given us the grace that we need through Jesus, who is our our rescuer. He's that sacrifice, that one who was sacrificed for us so that we might be saved and consecrated among among the people of the earth. Yes? In a sense, could this also be referring specifically well, I think it did. Uh, I think it's probably better to say that it refers to the covenant people. Um, now, in the Old Testament, the covenant people were marked off by geographic boundaries. But then, but even within that, within that uh, covenant people, we have the promise that God made to Abraham that said, "Hey, your descendants 
the children of the covenant, as it were, are going to be as many as the stars of the sky. You're going to be the father of many nations. So we have kind of the embryonic form of the people of God, the covenant people of God, which is sort of uh, the locus of that is the nation of Israel. But even within that, there's the seed which will sprout and bear fruit and become uh, a great nation. You know, all those who have the faith of Abraham are sons and daughters of Abraham. So it includes us, not merely, not only the the sort of genetic or ethnic people of Israel, though it includes all of the people of Israel who believe. Yeah, good good question, good thought. All right, uh, at the day of the Lord, people from all nations will gather. Uh, together to worship. How does the gospel bring people together? And conversely, how does legalism push people apart? What do you think? How does the gospel bring people together? And how does legalism push us apart? I think, you know, where it says that Jesus has um, in himself broken down the hostility talking between us and God, but also I think he has gotten rid of barriers between groups of people, and we're certainly united by the Holy Spirit if we're in Christ, which can break down a lot of other things, you know, and so I think the heart of the gospel unites people in the spirit of Christ, whereas if we are just bound by legalism, then whatever our favorite law is, is going to define us and our group. And it will exclude other people. So I think, yeah. And I think the gospel allows people who have different, they're in different places in their walk with Christ to come together, you know, who may have different conscience about different things um, in a way that it's really powerful. Good. Yeah, and she's referring to Ephesians chapter 2, which talks about how the gospel breaks down the dividing wall of hostility that separates Jews and Gentiles. It did in the ancient world, for sure. Yeah? It reminds me of the, the children's song. Is Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world. Around red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world so often. That's, yeah, that's a good point. So how, do, how does that work? How does the gospel unite us with people that are very, very different than us? Whether it's the ethnic background or color of skin or economics or, you know, how does, how does the gospel specifically inform us that, that we should be united with people who are very different than we are? Yeah, that we can trust the gospel because it comes from God, whereas legalism usually kind of rules that, that men sort of yeah. glom on to the, the law. Do you have a comment over here? Yeah, Don. 
Yeah, that's Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. On the one hand, it, it humbles us so that we don't feel superior, superior over someone else. But on the other hand, it exalts us because it says, you are an adopted child of God. And it exalts this other person that you're talking to, who again, may be very, very different than you are. And you could say, wow, this person, you know, if they, they're professing faith in Christ, they love the Lord Jesus, they're a child of God. And um, all of those other differences, uh, they continue to exist, of course, but they become uh, sources, I think, of excitement and joy and curiosity and say, hey, tell me about you. Tell me about your background. Hey, tell me where you came from um, versus, oh, well, you know, you're different and I'm this and we can't, you know, it, it brings us together. Good, good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great point, uh, that the Samaritans were an ethnic and religious group which was very hated by the Jewish people. And uh, Jesus not only spoke to a Samaritan woman by the well in John chapter 4, he actually told a parable where the Samaritan was the hero of the story. Not, not the victim. It's sort of an interesting story if you really get into it because on a human level, if I'm making up that story, if I'm making up a parallel... Well, I, I say, well, there was a Samaritan who's beaten in the road. And everyone says, oh, yeah, I mean, that makes sense. You know, it's like, and then, but then this, you know, one Jew who was kind of a jerk, you know, kept walking. And then a second one kept walking. But the great Jew at the end, the, the loving Jew picked him up and cared for him. He says, no, no, you're in the road, uh, Jewish people, Jewish, uh, you know, nation. And the Samaritan picks you up. That's very radical, very different, isn't it? Well, good. I don't have much more on the book of uh, Zephaniah. It is kind of a short book, and so we're going to close a little bit early. But uh, we'll get back here next week. Uh, any final questions before we close on this? Yes? The one about the reversal of creation. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. Did you hear that? Um, he's reminding us, very good Tim, that the first kind of actual reversal of creation happened in the flood. And then again, in the new heavens and the new earth, we're going to have sort of a reversal, uh, an uncreation and a recreation in the new heavens 
and the new earth. Good point. Yeah, good thing. And we certainly have that to look forward to. You know, that everything in this world that is broken by sin will be made right when Jesus comes again. That new heavens, new earth. And the reason why we can have hope in that, that we fit the last third of the book and not the first two-thirds of the book is because of Jesus. Because Jesus endured all of that judgment on Jerusalem and uh, all the nations in order that Jerusalem and all the nations might, might receive grace. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, I believe it said, God made him uh, who knew no sin to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There's that, that great exchange that takes place between Jesus and us. And so, on the one hand, we can read these stories about all the judgment, and it could be a warning to us that we want to be hidden in Christ, like Zephaniah, hidden in Yahweh, hidden in Christ. But on the other hand, we know that if we are hidden in Christ, then the blessings of the last third of the book will fall on us uh, because of him. So that's our hope. All right, let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this little book of Zephaniah. Uh, Lord, we don't study it very often, and often we can overlook it, but we do thank you for the promises of grace which we find in the book, uh, that though we live in a time where it seems like wickedness and sin has the upper hand, we know ultimately that grace wins because Jesus wins, and we pray that we would be hidden in him as we place our faith in him each and every day. We thank you, Lord, that you have given the sacrifice in the form of your son, Jesus Christ, and that there's no more sacrifices that we need to make. We simply need to uh, receive and rest upon him for salvation as Jesus has been promised in the gospel, the good news of life. Hear our prayer and prepare us now for worship in Jesus' name. Amen.